farthest reaches of the universe, there once existed a planet known as Krypton, a planet that burned like a green star in the distant heavens. There, civilization was far advanced, and it brought forth a race of supermen, whose mental and physical powers were developed to the absolute peak of human perfection. But there came a day when giant quakes threatened to destroy Krypton forever. One of the planet's leading scientists, sensing the approach of doom, placed his infant son in a small rocket ship and sent it hurtling in the direction of the Earth just as Krypton exploded. Uncanny Mystic Minds Podcast. Hey, welcome back to another Uncanny Mystic Minds. So for today, um, I wanted to uh, read a little bit about my interesting and funny uh, book. Uh, it's, a, it's a cool book. Uh, Our Gods Wear Spandex, The Secret History of Comic Book Heroes. Uh, it's by Christopher Knowles. And uh, yeah, I had gotten this one a while ago and uh, I just kind of had skimmed through it and stuff and... Uh, yeah, I just kind of liked it. It was like interesting. I had a bunch of different stuff. It kind of like talks about uh, it. You know, it it, it uh, relates uh, comic book heroes to like you know gods of different pantheons and like where things came from and it kind of gives context and all that stuff. So yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. You know, um, and so uh, I wanted to just kind of skip around and kind of just share some cool parts that I thought were interesting. And so. Uh, I'm going to start here with like chapter four. It's a dawn of the gods. So every culture has had its superheroes in early times when strength and courage meant the difference between life and death. The strongest and bravest were held in the highest esteem. It's only natural, therefore, that they would encourage the telling of stories to extol their prowess and record their exploits. The most exciting and creative of these stories were passed down from generation to generation and carried to other cultures through migration. With each retelling, these stories became more fantastical. From these origin tales of superheroes came the first stories of the gods. So we have Sumer in Egypt. One of the earliest texts known tells us the story of the Sumerian hero Gilgamesh. Other Sumerian texts and tablet detail the exploits of a pantheon of suspiciously human-acting gods. These myths are told in such a detail that some observers, like linguist uh, Zachariah Stitchin, claim that they are not myths at all, but garbled accounts of a race of extraterrestrial that colonized the earth and created humanity as its slave race. Whatever the case, it's certain that these stories of gods and heroes traveled with Sumerian gods and technologies like writing to other parts of the ancient world. Ancient Egypt was one of Sumer's foremost trading partners, exchanging not only goods and services, but also ideas and culture. Ancient Egypt was a society almost as saturated in media as our own. Thanks in part to the dry climate and the ever-shifting desert sands, an astonishing number of artifacts have survived from the glory days of the great empire, including statues, reliefs, papyri, figurines, amulets, totems, and jewelry. All of these cultural artifacts were inseparable from their religious context. In many ways, the hieroglyphs and picture stories of the ancient Egyptians can be seen as a precursor to modern comic strips. The Egyptians worshipped worshipped a vast array of colorful and exotic gods whom they called Netur. Uh, 
their gods controlled all aspects of creation and existence, leading some to believe that the word nature, as in Latin adaption of nature, since their exoteric religion focused primarily on the next world, that is, death, judgment, and the afterlife, the Egyptians raised the god Osiris, lord of the underworld, above all others. Osiris sat in judgment of the dead and determined whether they went to paradise or whether their souls were destroyed later. Later, Osiris, overshadowed by his sister and wife Isis, a goddess who served many functions and over time observed, absorbed those of earlier goddesses. Isis was the mother of Horus, the hawk-headed god of kings. Horus was the god of the sun, of the sky, and of the horizons. Some scholars believe that they that the very word hero derives from his Egyptian name Heru. Horus is the Greek rendering of the name. Horus was also the star of one of the first great action-adventure dramas, The Contending of Horus and Set. In these dramas, Horus and his evil uncle Set, who were responsible for sending Osiris to the afterworld, contend for the throne of Egypt in a series of battles that would do any comic book writer proud. The two gods shapeshift, they race boats of stone, they maim each other, their body parts become lotus flowers, in the end Horus wins the throne and Set is granted dominion over the western desert. Thus in life every king of Egypt is an incarnation of Horus and in death becomes a new Osiris. Egyptians were extremely uh, syncretic in their religion. They absorbed the gods and goddesses from other tribes and cities and even from other nations. It is now believed that Horus was actually imported into Egypt by tribes of chariot-driving warriors who came down from Mesopotamia. Horus then observed the roles of earlier gods and came to be closely identified with Ra, the primeval god of the sun. Today, Egypt's power over the population imagination is undiminished. Since discovery of the Rosetta Stone in 1799, an astonishing number of texts left from the ancient Egypt have been translated. We see Egyptian iconography everywhere, not just on the back of our dollar bill. The greater legacy of Egypt, however, is in its role as birthplace of the mystery religions. The pyramids and tombs of Egypt were places of initiation for scholars all across the ancient world. Isis eventually became the supreme goddess of Rome. The trinity of Osiris, Isis, and Horus became central to Hellenistic mystery cults, and some would say to Rosicrucianism and Freemasonry as well. For thousands of years, esotericists have sought to resurrect the Egyptian mysteries so that the power that built those inexplicable monuments can be harnessed once again. Here's going to be Greece and Rome. The early Greeks and the Romans worshipped roughly the same pantheon as the Egyptians, albeit under different names. Gods like Zeus, Jupiter, Hera, Juno, Hermes, Mercury, and Helios, Apollo, starred in fanciful dramas that were depicted in murals, pottery, poems, and statues. 
The gods fought epic battles against their predecessors, the Titans, and later interacted with humans in allegorical parables. Each god was assigned mastery over specific art or science or facet of nature. Their icons and images persist to this day, especially in our modern superheroes. The epic myths of the Greek of the Greeks all centered around godlike superheroes. The outcome of the Trojan War hinged not on the armies of Greece and Troy, but on the mighty warriors Hector and Achilles. Odysseus lent his name to the title of Homer's epic poem, The Odyssey, which is still used as a synonym for high adventure. Hercules and his twelve labors were a favorite in the classical world, as were the stories of the great sea captain Jason and his brotherhood of the warriors, the Argonauts. To the Greeks, these heroes were essentially demigods. Reverence for Hercules as a hero developed later into a cult-like worship. The same is true of real-life heroes Alexander, the Macedonian prince who had conquered most of the known world before dying at the tender age of 33, became a superhero in the ancient world. Every would-be conqueror in antiquity measured himself against Alexander. Julius Caesar came on the scene when historians were far less likely to deify their subjects, but he still set a standard to which alpha males have aspired ever since. The question is raised, were the ancient myths that developed around these superheroes ever meant to be read the way Christians read their scripture? Were these stories all considered sacred or were some meant simply as entertainment? The people of the Hellenistic world were not naive. Their culture produced great thinkers on whom we built our modern society. It's unlikely that educated Greeks took the gods and their myths at face value. It's far more probable that these stories simply supplied a cultural context that allowed the Hellenes to metaphorically interpret the meaning of life and the world around them, much as uh, Aesop's or Jesus' parables did. Gradually, the Greeks and the Romans turned away from these imperfect gods in favor of more idealized deities, particularly the great mother goddess like uh, Isis and dying resurrecting solar gods like Mithras and Adonis. The merging of these pagan cults with a platonic philosophy and Hebrew morality resulted in the emergence of Christianity, a cult that developed eventually dominated most of the Western world. In retrospect, it all seems inevitable. The old gods were too fanciful and the mystery cults are too abstract. Yet, Hellenes like Luke and Paul simply drew upon this same blend of myth and morality to spin their own tales and the history of religion always comes down to who tells the best stories, doesn't it? Let's get a little deeper into uh, like some more character stuff. So uh, this is like a little introduction before we get into the character part. So this is called Who Will Save Us? All superheroes are essentially savior figures. Unlike religious saviors, however, superheroes offer salvation as a tangible, unambiguous event. They exist quite simply to save others from physical danger, which explains their enduring appeal. Tales of their exploits address real anxiety and satisfy a deep need. The childhood need for a father or a big brother to shield us from harm and solve our problems is an impulse we all feel. 
That is why superheroes traditionally enjoy greater popularity with children and adults. In times of national stress, children are remarkably sensitive to existential threats and they often internalize their parents' anxieties. And, and adults often feel as vulnerable as children when confronting the fear of war or economic hardship. Young children have a magical worldview. Because they don't understand the physical process of the everyday world, they tend to perceive their environment as supernatural. This is true even in older children, though many may deny it if, if pressed because superheroes were originally aimed at an audience of children. They are all essentially magical, with no basis in science or ordinary reality. Even if superheroes like Spider-Man or Green Lantern draw their powers from technology, the actual scientific explanation for those powers is simply window dressing. If you are bitten by a radioactive spider, chances are good you'll get a horrible rash, go into toxic shock and then die, not wake up in the next morning and start climbing up walls. Themes of mutants, androids, and cyborgs speak to social and spiritual impulses, not science. As America struggled to emerge from the Great Depression, the symbols and stories of the old gods re-entered American culture. In the, in the comic books, these gods and heroes of antiquity truly came alive and helped aspire, inspire America to regain its strength. This return of the old gods collided head-on with huge leaps forward in science and technology. At the same time, genetics prompted scientists to ponder the possibility of improving the race through genetic manipulation. Credible ideas about space travel were pro uh, propounded to a public of many of whom still believe there were intelligent life on Mars and Venus. Science and philosophy and religion and the occult uh, all merge in a general yearning to overcome intractable human problems and improve mankind's future. The, uh, this yearning also had a dark side. However, that manifested in ethnocentric uh, politics, racial hatred, and fascism. These dark impulses turned the occult striving toward the new man into murderous political movements that unfortunately claim justification from the same text that gave rise to the modern superhero. The parallels have not gone unnoticed, and some social critics today feel that the superhero myth is irredeemably fascist. It was this yearning that inspired the young writers who created the superheroes from uh, Andescendants in the pulps, mythology, religion, and folktales. In fact, most superhero figures fall into a handful of archetypical categories drawn from origins in the ancient mysteries. All right, so this is called Magic Men. Magic Men. Wizard archetypes are, are as old as fiction itself. Thoth, Egyptian lunar god and patron of magic and science, was perhaps the first wizard archetype. Thoth was also the patron deity of Aleister Crowley's magnum opus on the tarot, which he called the Book of Thoth. The melding of Thoth and his Greek counterpart Hermes gave the world Hermes Trismegistus, thrice great Hermes, the patron of all magical arts and scientists in the pagan world. This tradition, known simply as Hermeticism, was powerful and influential enough to survive centuries of brutal and bloody suppression by the Catholic Church and enjoy revival among the alchemists of the Middle Ages, who saw themselves as heirs to the Hermetic tradition. Few people realize, however, that 
explicitly magical characters are actually the earliest examples of modern superheroes. In fact, it can be argued that all superheroes are essentially magical, since most of their powers have no basis in real science. Early superheroes like Captain Marvel, Phantasmo, and Green Lantern were unambiguously magical in origin, drawing on themselves, uh, drawing on themes taken directly from the pulps. Wizards function as shamans and medicine men, teachers and priests, and often as chieftains in ancient tribal societies. Three of the most famous sorcerers in Western culture are the three wise men from the Gospel of Matthew. These magi were Zoroastrian astrologers said to have prophesied the coming of Christ, whom they, whom they found in a manger in Bethlehem. The most famous sorcerer of all, of all time, however, is Merlin, the mage from the King Arthur myths. Merlin is usually portrayed as the wise wizard of the Uther Pendragon's court who raises and tutors young Arthur to become king of the Britons. Many of the, many of the Arthurian romances are told from Merlin's point of view, and Merlin seems to be the archetype for both Gandalf the White in uh, J.R.R. from uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy and Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars dramas. A less acknowledged... Uh, a, a less acknowledged inheritor of Merlin's mantle is Q, the master of technological wonders in the James Bond films, whose role is very much like that of Merlin in the Arthurian tales. A scolding paternal figure who is also the source of the in ingenious tricks and gadgets that regularly save the day. Likewise, Obi-Wan Kenobi can be seen as a Christ-like sci-fi Merlin who sacrifices himself to save Luke and Leia and their companions. Obi-Wan and Q, like Gandalf, are both members of a brotherhood. In Obi-Wan's case, the, supp the suppressed Jedi in Q's The Secret Service. Of course, the most popular magus today is Harry Potter, created by J.K. Rowling. In a time when most children can't be bothered to read anything, Rowling has created a series of runaway bestsellers devoured by millions of young readers the world over. Sociologists have wasted volumes trying to explain Harry Potter's unprecedented success when they need not have looked far at all. The answer lies in the heart and imaginations of all insecure young, uh, young children and adults who want to believe that they, like Harry, Ron, and Hermione, have latent magical powers that can help them negotiate the horrors of adolescence and life. And as we'll see later, Harry has a direct ancestor in the comics. Okay, now we're going to get to the Messiahs. Some historians note that the long-awaited Jewish Messiah was an earthly king, very much a man of the world and not necessarily of the spirit. The term itself, which means simply anointed, was bestowed on a number of other characters in the Old Testament. Jews believed that the Messiah would be a descendant of King David, who would lead them out of captivity and restore Jewish rule in Palestine. By that description, the first prime minister of Israel, David Gurion, is as much a messiah as anyone. Yet say the word messiah and the first thing that pops into most people's minds is Jesus Christ. The messiah of the funny pages is a noble self-sacrificing hero who acts to save others out of a sense of altruism. Superman, of course, is a first and foremost of this type. Spider-Man is another. 
the Messiah superhero became so widely popular because he addressed deep-seated anxieties in American life. Fascism, corporate corruption, and organized crime had grown to such a degree by the late 1930s that they seemed both overwhelming and intractable. Superman rose from the ranks of the common man to counter these threats. Of course, DC editors quickly blanderized him and inspired thousands of impotent saviors that diluted the force of the archetype. The archetype remains a popular figure nonetheless through contemporary writers have worked hard to make Superman and other messianic characters interesting and relevant. It's often difficult for readers to relate to a character who uses his powers for purely altruistic purposes, not for self-gain. Indeed, salvation through Christ's sacrifice on the cross makes sense only to those completely committed to the Christian faith. For many, it's hard not to see these characters as fundamentally deluded or at least severely misguided. In the mythic realm of comic books, however, the laws of human nature are often suspended. The messiahs can arise who need not be anointed by God to save his people or humanity in general. Alright, so here we're going to check out Superman. Superman, who made his debut in Action Comics in 1938, is one of the world's most popular and enduring messiah characters. Created by two young cartoonists from Cleveland named Jerome Siegel and Joseph Schuster, Superman has been the subject of countless thousands of comic books and strips, a movie serial, a popular radio show, several TV cartoons, a live action series, toys, games, enough memorabilia to stretch from the earth to the moon. Superman was not an overnight success, however. Siegel had created him several years before his comic debut but had no luck promoting him to the newspaper syndicates of the fledging comic book publishers who rejected the character as too fanciful. Finally, DC publisher Harry Donfield bought the character outright for 200, 200 bucks, and Superman became an immediate hit, inspiring thousands of imitators in many ways. It can be said that all subsequent comic book superheroes are, in fact, variations on Superman. Superman is Call L the last son of Krypton, sent into space as an infant by his scientist father when his home planet explodes. His space capsule lands in the midwestern town of Smallville, where it is found by an elderly couple named... One second, sorry. We're doing live-action books here. Kent, who named the, the baby Clark, and raised him as their own. Clark, from who, from uh, the start, displayed amazing strength leaves Smallville for Metropolis and goes to work as a reporter for the Daily Planet. In times of crisis, he dons his blue and red costume and uses his powers, flight and super strength and x-ray vision to fight for truth and justice. At his core, Superman is, is a messiah in the biblical tradition who can also be seen as a metaphor for American Jewish assimilation. The destruction of Krypton is an apt metaphor for the diaspora as well as for the assault on European Jewish communities that prompted their mass immigration to North America in the late 19th century. In Michael uh, Chabin's novel about the comics industry, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, a Jewish character comments on Clark Kent's secret identity. Superman, you don't think he's Jewish? Coming from the old country, changing his name like that? Clark Kent? Only a Jew would pick a name like that. Superman's identity as one of the people of the book is cemented 
when he takes a job as a reporter and pledges himself to fight the good fight. Jerry Siegel had a more esoteric vision of his Superman than merely a new King David. However, Les Daniels notes that Siegel must have had the uh, had to have been aware of the analogies with Jesus, pointing out that Superman was a man sent from the heavens by his father to use his special powers for the good of humanity. Other writers also noted these Christ-like characteristics and played them as they developed similar characters. Writer Kurt Busiek called his version of Superman the Samaritan in his series Astro City, and he ran a strip called Son of God that parodied Jesus as a Superman-like hero complete with red cape and art by DC Comics star Neil Adams. In the early issues of Action Comics, however, Superman is not the smiling, idealized Apollo he later becomes. He's a pissed-off crusader who fights for the common man against the corruption of the power elite. Many of his early adventures touch on occult and mythological themes. He meets Cleopatra, fights to protect the Great Pyramids, stands alongside Atlantis and Hercules, Superman uh, in, in Superman number 28 and encounters an extra dimensional imp with magical powers called Mr. Holy shit. Mr. Mixel Pluck. The source of this power is the sun, which ties him to solar gods like Horus and Mithras, as well as biblical characters like Samson and Elijah. These divine aspects of Superman's character only increase over the years and historian Bradford Wright notes that Superman comic books developed into fantastic mythos that owed less and less to any standard of reality. Superman's powers, daunting enough to begin with, grew to staggering godlike dimensions. These godlike powers became a major news stories in 1992 with the cynical death of Superman, publicly stunned. In this storyline, uh, Superman is killed by an alien called Doomsday and spends several issues in a kind of limbo while a bunch of tedious substitutes try to fill his shoes. Reinforcing his biblical dimension, Superman dies and rises again, complete with a Christ-like mane that most traditionalists hated. Driving home the parallel, the cover of the graphic novel Death of Superman in 93 features a, gar a garish of tasteless tribute to Michelangelo's Piata with Lois Lane cast in the role of the Virgin Mary. One curious footnote of the Superman saga has played out outside the comic pages. A series of tragic events, the mysterious death of TV Superman George Reeves in 1959. The horrible accident left Superman Christopher Reeve a quadriplegic, the subsequent death of his uh, wife from cancer, and the serious illnesses of Superman 3 stars Margot Kidder and Richard Pryor inspired talk of a curse of Superman. Despite the purported curse, however, Superman is still a popular character and continues to earn millions for his owners. Chaos magician Grant Morrison hit the top of the charts with, with his 2005 All-Star Superman series. 2006 Superman Returns, while not quite the Earthshaker, Warner Brothers hoped for he earned a whopping $390 million worldwide. The Cape Crusader is the star of the successful Justice League cartoons, and Superboy is a star of the 2006 CW Network series, Legion of Superheroes. Superman even bridged the gender gap with two hit TV series that captured a female audience, Lois and Clark, New Adventures of Superman and Smallville. These shows proved that, if handled correctly, new gods could appeal to a wider audience as the ultimate expression 
of human aspirations to power and pure freedom. Dr. Don Blake reaches the only possible decision. I must return to Asgard and explain to Odin. So be it. And then, within a matter of minutes, I shall return to my beloved Jane. Little knowing of the strange reception which awaits him, Thor hurtles toward Asgard. Hail, most noble father. If my father hath no desire to converse, then I shall return to Earth. Now we're going to get to Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel was Superman's most serious competition in the marketplace. In fact, Captain Marvel uh, Adventures far outsold Superman in the hero's heyday, and Captain Marvel was the first superhero to be adapted to film in 1941, The Adventures of Captain Marvel. DC Comics rightly saw Captain Marvel as a serious market threat. In many ways, Captain Marvel was a far more fascinating character than Superman. He's not an actual individual, but a magical entity into which young Billy Batson transubstantiates when he utters the occult incantation Shazam, the name of the wizard who granted Batson his powers and an acronym for the ancient deities who lend the captain their powers. Batson's transfiguration strongly resembles a Masonic or secret society initiation. In the first Captain Marvel story, Billy, a homeless orphan, is led by a mysterious stranger into an abandoned subway tunnel, recalling initiations performed in ancient times. Out of nowhere, a driverless subway car decorated with arcane symbols appears to Billy and the stranger climb aboard. Then they enter an ancient hallway lined with statues depicting the seven deadly enemies of man. Pride, envy, greed, hatred, selfishness, laziness, and injustice. Billy enters the throne room and his mysterious companion vanishes. Billy then encounters an ancient wizard, Shazam, who conjures an, an inscription on the wall behind him out of, the name, out of the names of six deities. Billy speaks this magic word, is struck by a bolt of lightning, and magically transfigures into Captain Marvel. Uh, resplendent in red, white and yellow cape, and costume solar colors all the wizard is then crushed by a slab of stone and his kenobi like uh, wraith uh, immediately emerges and lights an eternal flame in a ceremonial urn symbolizing the death and transformation of osiris and the birth of horus the new sun king shazam instructs captain marvel to go out and fight against evil and injustice one of marvel's nemesis is black adam whose name is an appropriate uh, is an approximate cipher for Egyptian man. By the 1940s, Captain Marvel soon found himself surrounded by his own pantheon, including Captain Marvel Jr., Mary Marvel, several Lieutenant Marvels, an Uncle Marvel, and even a Marvel Bunny. The Captain and the Captain Jr. and Mary often appear together in adventures, mirroring the Egyptian holy family of Osiris, Isis, and Horus. The fact that Mary Marvel is Billy Batson's lost twin sister helps cement the Osiris-Isis connection. In 1953, after 13 lucrative years, Fawcett finally canceled the Captain Marvel series, prompted by de decreasing sales and a series of, of infringement lawsuits by DC Comics. 
but the story doesn't end there. Fawcett led the trademark on Captain Marvel laps and Marvel Comics snapped it up in 68. Only a fumble to uh, only a fumble the ball, their sci-fi oriented Captain Marvel went through a series of incarnations resulting in mostly forgettable adventures. The strip enjoyed its greatest success under artist writer Jim Starlin, a lapsed Catholic obsessed with mysticism, magic, and death. Starlin pitted Marvel against Thanos, an alien tyrant who worships death as his lover. Death later came for Starlin's hero in a 1981 graphic novel entitled The Death of Captain Marvel, who, who's also, who, whose cover also featured a parody of the Pieta with the Captain as Christ and Death as Virgin. Alright, now we're going to round it out with The Mighty Thor. Jack Kirby never got Captain Marvel out of his system. In fact, it's probably a safe bet that using Thor as a superhero in Marvel Comics' own version of Captain Marvel was Kirby's idea. Elements of the Captain are present in the 1962 premiere of The Mighty Thor, The Stone Men from Saturn, Journey into the Mystery, number 83. In this classic tale, crippled Dr. Don Blake is vacationing in Norway when an invasion force of rocky alien appears, uh, aliens appear in the sky. Blake flees to a cave where he discovers a stick that, when struck on the ground, allows, it to allows its carrier to transform into Thor himself. It is interesting to note that Thor's cavern of transformation echoes Captain Marvel's subway tunnel, both of which harken back to the caverns and grottos of the ancient mystery religions. Kirby later took over the plotting of Thor and turned it into a full-bore comic uh, cosmic psychedelic mythological freakout planets came alive hercules and other olympian gods dropped in and out and a space age version of dr moreau called the high evolutionary set uh set him his new men in battle against the thunder god thor's nemesis loki granted humans uh, human villains godlike powers and don blake's lady love jane foster herself became a goddess Thor died, Thor was reborn, Thor was ungodded by Odin, Ragnarok came, Ragnarok went. Kirby used the mighty Thor as a vehicle for his unquenchable inner rage and his boundless, nearly supernatural imagination. The series churned with a particular frenetic voice, softened by only Lee's charming dialogue and Vince Coletta's fairy tale inks. Kirby left the book in 71. And uh, let's see here. But writer Roy Thomas and artist John Buscema worked hard to keep his spirit alive. Osiris, Isis, Horus, and Set even made their way up north for one 1975 storyline, Thor number 240. In 1983, Kirby apostle Walt uh, Simmons brought the hero back to this mythological roots and even added some well researched Nordic design flourishes on the strip. Alright, well, I think that's pretty good for right now. Yeah, this book's pretty cool, man. It's like, it really ties, uh, it really gives you background on, like, you know, some some origins for all this stuff. And it gets, it, it kind of, you know, breaks it all the way down to the archetype. So, I find that pretty fascinating, man. It's pretty cool. Um, yeah, I'm going to keep reading more of this. I was just kind of skipping, a, you know, kind of skipping around and jumping around. and want to show you guys some cool parts that I liked. And, uh, yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed it, and I'll talk to you guys later. At a county fair, the great master, Sandu, 
demonstrates his mind-reading power. Your social security number is 560-141683. Hey, that's correct. He's terrific. Such fantastic powers must not be wasted on small feats. I shall increase his extrasensory ability a thousand times stronger. And he shall be the pawn whereby I shall seize Thor's hammer. When the wicked Loki had worked his evil spell, what's happening to me? I seem to possess a strange power of levitation by merely concentrating. And with that strange power, Sandu, you shall create as much havoc on Earth as I did once. Uncanny Mystic Minds Podcast. <laughs>